Oh, hey, it's you. Good to have you here. For those who don't know me, I'm Russ Shaw, the host. Honored that you would spend this time with me here personally, you, behind your set of ears. Welcome, William Paul Young, back on the podcast here. He's an incredible author and storyteller. He has a YouTube channel called Restoring the Shack. He's the author of four New York Times bestselling books, one called Lies We Believe About God, which I strongly recommend. Uh, his That was his latest book, Eve, Crossroads, and a 23 million copy bestseller, which became a film in 2017 starring Sam Worthington, the Academy Award winning Octavia Spencer, joining... George Burns, Morgan Freeman, right, in playing God. Okay, I'm going to shut up now, and we're going to get right into it, all right? A.S. Your attitudes of sexual integrity. 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 A.S. You're listening to Weezer Bumper. Season 6, episode 36, joining me via iDevice. On the other side of this bumper, Paul Young. ASI247.org I settled down with my girl and I made up with my dad Had to go and make a few mistakes so I could find out who I am I'm letting all of these feelings out even if it means I fail Cause this is what I was meant to do and you can't put that on sale Take me back, back to the shack Back to the start with the lightning strap Paul Young, it's great to have you on the podcast once again. How are you doing, man? How's how's it going over there? I'm. You know what? I'm doing really well. And and you look like. Let's see. You got basement stuff hanging from the <laughs> ceiling. Right. You got Christmas lights. I'm still I in mean, the basement, Paul. I'm doing the what, basement what studio. What kind of a dungeon are you in? That's right. This is where the punk rock happens, man. That's nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's knocking the. Uh, kind of going south down here but but that's uh, all right it's quiet it's a beautiful thing that's right quiet no, i'm cool. doing well i'm doing well well i'm back on the road quite a bit in the fall and then uh taking time off for christmas and stuff nice so. so let me introduce you really quick uh william paul young speaker author uh parent and grandparent right yep absolutely uh, you, uh, author of The Shack, which is a, a huge bestseller, calling it a bestseller would be like, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing what you... It's what a unicorn. Yes. It's just one of those things that actually don't exist. I've heard it's on one of the, what, the... Uh, Best-selling more, fictions of all history, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of How human weird history. Is that? That's why it's a unicorn. And uh, it came out in 2008. called it a wildfire, and, and here's why, which is a really cool idea, is that... Every once in a while, there's a book that comes through and doesn't just burn a big, huge swath through the culture. It also begins to attract other readers. And so it's a wildfire. It keeps just, it's, it pops up everywhere. And it continues to do it. I mean, right. the shack, my, one of my boys sent me a note yesterday saying, still going, because that was number one and number two in all Christian fiction. So oh, that's wow. after 12 years. I think you become more mainstream too, where 
before the film, I, I think you were a little more edgy, like you were a little more, maybe, I got accused of this by a listener recently, um, uh-huh. and got, and bless their heart, right, and they sent me an article on, uh, on being a Christian progressive, like, I'm worried you're becoming a Christian progressive, Russ, and, and they sent me an article on how three ways uh, being a progressive leads to unbelief. Uh, I know. Isn't that, who was the, somebody recently said that uh, becoming a Christian progressive is the step out of the door to unbelief. Yeah. And, and And you know what's crazy is if you look at the statistics about what's happened to the brick and mortar churches, um, as someone said to me, the largest denomination in the world is the Catholic Church, and the second largest denomination in the world are Catholics who have left the Catholic Church. <laughs> right. And and statistically, if you go back and you survey the people who have left the brick-and-mortar churches, a good percentage, like 70-plus percent, also ejected a relationship with Jesus, mm. which means it wasn't the progressive part of it that was the issue. It was the fact that in the brick-and-mortar system, they never got introduced to Jesus. And so now they, when they've shucked off the brick-and-mortar system, they've also just subbed Jesus off to, off to the side. And, um, and that's, that's very wrenching. That's, that's sad that uh, so many precious people could not distinguish between the person of Jesus in their life and the institutional system. It's become sort of a branding um, thing, the church. I think the American church especially, because we're we're kind of business-oriented, it seems, and, you know, you, you, you create... I, I drive through, you know, the Northwest here, and the farther you get away from the city, the more you see more churches with with new signs, Right. And they all, each church is named something. It's kind of their brand, right? Like, yeah. uh, like yeah. we're the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the woke church. I'm waiting, to, I'm waiting to see that sign. Hashtag woke, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, well, the punk church. <laughs> there, there you go. That's right. The <laughs> punk church. I'm sure there's, there's some of that. Mars Hill was kind of like that. Mars Hill was yeah. very, guys wearing tattoos. Everybody had tattoos and piercings. And Mark would preach in a Ramones t-shirt and, say a few swear words, and it sounded like, you know, okay, this is Seattle. This fits our culture, right? Yeah. Well, all they did is they put they they put flares on their Thunderbird. <laughs> what do you mean by that? <laughs> so so there's a type of, of movement in Christianity where you just, you move to the culture. Right. But, you're, but your, your gospel doesn't change. That is, you're still stuck in performance orientation. So right. you, you take your dad's Thunderbird <laughs> and you put big mags on it and right. and flares on it and then say, see, we're progressive. Yeah, yeah. there you go. So, I know. Yeah. It's, yeah, but we, we tend to do that. And I'm watching something very fascinating happening now where the business world are beginning to be aware, like Brene Brown's uh, book on leadership, um, of empathy and vulnerability and authenticity and clarity, things which are inherently part of the gospel of Jesus. But the business world is picking those things up and they're changing. And, you know, here the institutional religious systems were trying to become more like a business. And now the businesses are abdicating their role as business systems and becoming more relational. 
Right. And it's and so you know the institutional religion is usually about fifteen to twenty years behind, if not further. Yeah. And uh, and here we go again. You know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. It's uh, but it's a beautiful thing to watch because it means that life is happening outside the walls and right. not that life can't happen inside obviously life happens inside the walls because the holy spirit is is not constricted by our lim- our our limited perspectives and understanding but um there is a lot that's going on outside the brick and mortar and it's a very welcome thing yeah and that's kind of what i wanted to also uh church needs a diet <laughs> <laughs> exactly it, it needs less stress and I think what, what you wrote, speaking of stress, what you wrote in the shack, it's, it's a piece of fiction. It's funny how a lot of people didn't know that, including myself, you know. I started reading the book the first time I, we had that conversation, and that was when Mars Hill was falling apart. I think yeah. the first time I, I talked to you, that first interview on, on ASI was, uh, was when, yeah, I was in this kind of, wow, like I thought this was a thing that worked, and here it is falling apart, and... Yeah, this guy would rather you know go down with a ship than have some humility. It seemed, and uh, and and you were you were saying things that were shaking, rattling my tree. And I hadn't read your book, and of course, Mark called you a heretic, and and so here I am. He probably he probably sold me more books than anybody else on the planet. Right, that's yeah. true. <laughs> yeah. called, it went viral, you know, and he and he called me a heretic. He said, "If you have not read this book called The Shack, don't." Right, and it went viral, and I, I'm not kidding. You know where right. the law comes, sin abounds, yeah. and I think a lot of people bought the book because Mark said not to read it, yeah. and including a lot of Mars Hill people. Yeah, yeah, so, that's yeah. true. And but I didn't read it until that time, you know. Yeah. And well, it's 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 true. It's just not real. So yeah, let's, yeah. But that's the beautiful thing about art, and that's kind of what the conversation I wanted to to press into with you is a little philosophy on how art changes people, even changing cultures, you know? Um, Yeah. What you wrote was more subjective, but you are, you know, like you said, it's it's orthodox, right? This would be... to the core. Yeah, orthodox theology. Uh, And that's something that I was... I've been... It's funny, a friend of mine, John became orthodox he left mars hill and became orthodox and 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 me and my my buddy uh leo we got all worried about him <laughs> like oh no he's becoming religious don't he's those people the slippery wear... slope <laughs> yeah he's don't those guys wear robes and hats and all that stuff like but um over time and, and getting to know my friend john and i'm still not fired up about the the pageantry and the you know i mean the yeah, Vestmas. my friend, my friend Brad Jerzak, who's a theologian, he's Orthodox, and he's not fired up about the pageantry either. But, but that's not the point. Right. the The point is that there is a there is a freedom inside of that theologically, and a love that's inside of that theologically that transcends a lot of what you and I grew up with. Yeah. You know, so the people who think that the shack's not orthodox, and I'm talking about orthodox theologically, that is that it's rooted in in scripture and rooted in the traditions of the early church. Um, um, not just on the, you know, I'm not talking about the Eastern Orthodox family of of Christianity, but those of those folks that would not think the shack is orthodox are my own people, right? 
right? Yeah. The modern evangelical fundamentalists. Yeah. And um, but they're my people, and I totally understand where they're coming from. Right. Um, and so Mars Hill was made up of my people. Right. You know. Yeah. And uh, did I ever tell you that I went and met with Mark? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Met. You were supposed actually, to have... It was actually a good encounter. You and I have a, you, a friend, Jim Henderson. Um, yes! So, so Jim Henderson and you, I, I heard, set up shop in a church and said, after he had lambasted your book publicly for a whole sermon, you said, hey, let's talk about it. Let's have a conversation. We'll invite he didn't you want in. to meet publicly, no. Yeah, no, he didn't want to do that. Nobody, but, but he said, you'll meet me on my terms? I said, sure. He said, you'll meet me alone in my office. And I said, absolutely. Oh, and that's what, I, that's what I did. We had about a 45-minute conversation. This yeah. is before the, everything crashed and burned. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, kind of systemic silence, right? It's easier to not be clear and to kind of back away into the corners and... and you know, hope hope this all blows over. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nothing to yeah. see here. Um, but I didn't know about that. Most people at, at Mars Hill didn't know that you had that meeting had been set up. And you know, Jim was out there carrying picket signs out inside of Mars Hill. We all thought he was some Catholic or some religious wing nut or something. But yeah, we probably should have been listening. <laughs> hey, some did. Yeah, Jim. Some, Jim is a sweet brother. He's he a is, good man. He's a great guy, and he's very, very, very artistic and very uh, brilliant intellectually. Yeah, a guy who also kind of transcended that seeing religion in the institutional sense. Yeah, and really trying to to make things kind of move in the world. Yeah, um, there's there's this scene in the shack that's kind of. That's beautiful, and it and it haunted me. It grabbed my heart, grabbed a lot of people's hearts, I imagine. But that scene where uh, where Papa makes Mac breakfast, right, puts the plate in front of him, and, and he just he doesn't touch it. He's kind of pissed still, right? And he and she's well, his says, first morning after his first night there. So he's right. and he's had nightmares all night long about the loss of Missy. Yeah, you know yeah. the flying dream, and he crashes and. And, and he sees his daughter yelling his name or yelling, Daddy, Daddy, and he can't get to her. Yeah, you know, the, the right. worst nightmare. Yeah. And um, and that's what he wakes up to, and he walks out onto the porch, and Papa's got breakfast for him. Yeah, and and, and that conversation where, where she says, she, being God the Father, says, um, part of your, correct me if I'm wrong, but she says, part of your thinking, you know, part, part of this is that you think that I'm not good. And the, then fundam the fundamental flaw in your life, Mackenzie, yeah, that's it. is that you don't believe that I'm good. I am. And yeah. I'm, I'm involved in everything you consider to be a mess for your good. But until you believe that I'm good, you're never going to be able to trust me. Yeah, exactly. And he says, why? And I so resonated but with Why it. would I ever His, trust you? Exactly. His, um, my daughter is dead. Yeah. And there's nothing you can do to change that. Yeah. So much uh, where I think American evangelicalism misses misses the mark. It doesn't um back It doesn't believe God is good. Yeah. Or it has God in neat little boxes, right? Baxter Kruger had a great um I listened to the the shack revisited and he's talking about that scene where he's in the shack and it's empty and dark and 
Missy's blood stain is still there and he just tears the place apart. Um, that's most people who go through a tragedy coming to terms with the religion they were taught. Yeah. You know? There's just yeah. nothing there. And, and it's no wonder, like you said, you know, people walk away from the church or, or walk away from relationship with Jesus because they see that and go, where, you know, where's God? <laughs> where where, where, where is my humanity? Where do I matter? Yeah. You know, where's goodness? Where is love? I have to leave to find it, you know? Yeah. But that, that whole where do you mattering, I think it gets to the to the crux of like original sin. I think original sin can be boiled down to a coveting of abandonment. And you just, explain. Just sitting in uh, there's nothing outside of me and I'm I'm totally abandoned. Like I'm Yeah, aloneness. The yeah. commitment to aloneness. Yeah, exactly. Philosophically. That's where I, I go with it. Um, but I, I still, you know, I still struggle with the idea of trust, you know. And Welcome to the human race. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, because a lot of us as children were violated and, and, and we learned that we needed survival skills where children should never have to have survival skills. Right. You know, and uh, but in this world, it's broken enough, and so, so yeah, it's a big deal to to trust. And this is, I think, why we have such a gravitation toward religion in general. Yeah, is because you don't actually have to trust God; you just have to know what you're supposed to do. And not just religion, but um, the pursuit of purpose. You know, sure, that's it, religious. It is. It's like a secular religion. You know, getting away from the theological, I think that, you know, we're given sort of a, I don't want to shit on Tony Robbins, but that whole kind of self-help sort of, I need, I need purpose, I need, you know, things to make sense, this is my gifting, and I'm going to go in this direction. Um, when you were a younger man, Paul, uh, you, were, you were a musician, I hear. You played the piano. I did. And tell me about this song... Um, Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. <laughs> it, I, for two, I was like 12, 13 years old, and two years in a row, I played at a major music festival. The, and the winner got a full-ride scholarship to, like, Juilliard or wow. another thing like that. And I came in second two years in a row, and I lost both years to Moonlight Sonata. Right, the same song. <laughs> <laughs> same song. But also, I was so at risk, you know, and yeah. back then I had so little awareness of who I was that that, it, that being able to play music, it came with a whole bunch of pitfalls. One is, because I could play Tchaikovsky at a high level, I would, and I had reached... 10th grade conservatory of music in Canada that's a teaching level when I was 12 and 13 years old and um, and because I could memorize a, you know, a 15 page Tchaikovsky piece but I couldn't sight read a hymn I mean it was just a mental block and I don't know why and probably because I was safer with strangers than I ever was with anybody who I thought might know me and and also I was at risk for the one person in a hundred who would say that wasn't very good 
or you miss that, you know. And I'd literally puke my guts out for a week after, you know, those those big concerts. And finally, I couldn't handle the pressure anymore, and I just walked away. So I just laid it all down, right. and um, and uh, didn't never really picked up a piano again. Not now; it's an issue of time. Yeah. And uh, but uh, but I I did pick up a guitar, and that healed a lot of places in my own heart. So, That's great. Yeah. Sure. So there's people that, and I, I had a similar story. I was, uh, I had an internet idea and a startup, and I talked to investment capital people, and they're throwing around. This is around 1999, you know, when the big, right before the dot com crash, and when they're yeah, the big bubble was bubbling. Yeah, they're handing money out to you know whoever's got a halfway decent idea, and they're throwing around high six figures and. You know, you can put your idea on our machines, and you know we'll we'll pay you. And I'm I'm all excited, and and also growing up around sort of this prosperity gospel. Oh yeah, thing that magic. You know, yeah, I was going to this church at the time, and I'm paying my ten percent tithe, right? So God's this vending machine. And so you don't end up with a curse, yeah. Yeah. Malachi. Or, and it started looking like the vending machine was going to pay off, Paul. Like here yeah. it is, like oh God's blessing my life. And then in March, um, the NASDAQ crashed, you know, and it kept tumbling. I was also doing some stock option trading at the time, too, and uh, and I was out of the market when the whole thing crashed, and I got I, we got back in, some friends and I who were investing, and, and we were like, oh, it can't fall anymore from here, right? Wow, this yeah. This has got to be the bottom here. We'll get in now. And so we got in and, ooh, it'd take another dip. And then we, well, it's, this has got to be it. Let's get in again because this is the bottom. You know, no. And we, we yeah, we lost everything that we were investing in the, the option market at that time. And then these folks didn't return my calls. and it, But it was one of those things where we tend to tie those moments to to God, right, Paul? Of course. Well, you've got to have somebody to blame, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I just, that, I that's, that's also part of human history, too. I mean, that's kind of what a lot of thinkers would say religion started as, like... My crops are dying, Paul. I gotta pray to the. Give me the right God to pray to, so I don't lose my. Or, or let's even make it worse than that. That is, something bad happens to me. Therefore, either I'm being punished by God, or God's capricious, or whatever. Yeah, I'm on the wrong side of whatever. If something good happens to me, I must have done something good. So, there's a just a direct correlation between performance. And outcome, yeah, and uh, and and with regard to God, and Jesus comes along and says, "No, it doesn't work." You know, God causes the sun to shine on both the wicked and the righteous, and yeah. the rain to shine on both the wicked and the righteous, and and it's like, well, we don't want that, <laughs> you know, especially when we think we're the righteous people. Yeah, we, we we want God to kind of you know beat the crap out of the the wicked people, so that we feel better about ourselves. And a lot of our view of Scripture is like that, especially the Old Testament. Right. We just, and, and that was their view. I mean, that was the, that's, that's the darkness that they were trying to crawl out of, was that kind of a view of God. And, and they didn't make it. 
You know, they really didn't. By the time Jesus shows up, they don't recognize him. Right. And they're still pulling the same old language that has been existing from thousand, a couple few number of thousands of years of religious indoctrination outside of the revelation of Jesus. And a lot of and so we what we do, we go back and we re-enter that darkness and try to justify passages of scripture that just don't make any sense in the <laughs> when you're when you're dealing with the revelation of God in Jesus. Yeah. And and you end up with two gods. You end up with a with a God the Father who, you know, something happened to and 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 somehow Jesus is of a different character in nature. Yeah. You know. And and we get the ontology, the very being of God wrong. You get the being of God wrong, your theology is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, a lot of the way we look at scripture is we still get the being of God wrong. Even yeah. though Jesus is like, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We are ontologically one. Yeah. And um but no, 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 no. God the Father, he's different. He needs a sacrifice. He needs to be appeased. You know, he can pour his wrath on... Jesus doesn't need to pour his wrath on anybody. Yeah. But God the Father does. So yeah. you've got two different characters of God. And and that's a problem. Theologically, that's a big problem. Yeah, that's the Janus-faced God, right? Of a, yeah, exactly. Of paganism. Exactly. And, Absolutely pagan. Yeah, but how much is how much of the Old Testament is also? I don't know if you read Rob Bell's book on what is the Bible, and he talks sure. a lot about the the Old Testament being just like just like I said before, a lot of folks trying to figure out why their crops are dying, and they created stories for who this God is. Yeah, but somehow through all those stories, these books were collected to point to some prophecy, right? Yeah. Or they were, or they were, these stories were collected because inside the allegorical nature of story, truth can emerge. And, yeah. it, and, and then we try to use modern scientific methodology to take apart allegory in such a way or story in such a way that we're saying, no, that actually happened exactly that way. Yeah. You know, and, um, and then your writers of the New Testament are trying to clarify passages of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and um, and disagreeing. So Paul disagrees with Moses. I mean, flat out says Moses was wrong about uh, some things. Right. And Jesus is disagreeing with Moses. And Jesus and, is uh, saying things like, and, well, you say, you know, eye for an eye. Well, I say, you know, love your neighbor, and if he's thirsty, give him a drink of water. Love your enemy. Love your enemy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it's not that there, there isn't a need for cleansing, purification. Yeah. There absolutely is, because Justice. this world is broken, and yeah. we do very dastardly, hurtful, harmful things to each other. And so when, when we don't know who we are, apart from our own behavior that is predatory and hurtful, and um, how, is, how are we going to be separated from our sin? How are we going? How does that happen? Yeah. Well, it happens through transformation as through fire, and God, who is the consuming fire, Hebrews, yeah, is is the fire of love that is there to burn out anything that is not of love's kind. That's right. And um, so, so we we need that fire, but it's it's not a fun process. No, it's not. No, and it's. It's easier to believe in, you know, propitiation and things like that, and 
And that's a big thing too. There's a lot of buzz now about about hell and you know people not believing in hell. But I, you know, the whole thing about Gehenna, that's always been for a long time. That's been my my view. Is we've we've taken Dante's Inferno, right, in the 13th yeah. century, and, and and made that our theology on how God is just somehow, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't. I I believe in hell. But I don't believe in eternal conscious torment, right? And and I think that eternal conscious torment is a denial of the ontology of God's goodness, and it, it perpetuates an idea that that punishment, never-ending punishment, actually has any purpose at all. And it's like no, but that's what we inherited from Dante's infernalism is a modern-day eternal conscious torment concept. And it's like, no, God is the consuming fire. It is the fire of love. Yeah. And and you cannot separate the justice of God from a God who is by nature love. And, yeah. and what do you want for your children? Do you want them to be eternally consciously tormented? Right. Like, what kind of nonsense is this? But yet, you know, a lot of us totally bought into it. I grew up with that kind of consciousness from the time I was very small. And it and it gave us a position for behavioral modification. That was the that was the motivation for transformation. Yeah. Was fear. Yeah. And it's like, wait, how does that work? Yeah. How how does the motive for transformation be fear without exacerbating the fear? Exactly. You know. And uh, and it says there's no fear in love. That and God is love. That's first John. Yeah. And so how does that all work out? So, yeah, there's a lot of... Con- the conversation about hell is one that is arising right now, and I think it's really important. Um, yeah, it is. David Bentley Hart's book just came out, and, and, and he just blasts that from a very... And he's a recognized as one of the best theologians in the world right, right. now, yeah. living theologians. And he just... You know, we in the West, we think that modern evangelicalism is how people believe the whole world round. Right. And, and we're a small part of the conversation, and, and people are looking and going like, you hold to a concept that makes God no different than Marduk, Baal, right. Janus, or any of the other gods Zeus. of Mesopotamia, <laughs> or South America, or, or the Greek, Norse gods, yeah. Or, yeah, yeah, Greek or whatever, Egyptian, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so, so there is a really great rising up right now of a conversation that, that I think is going to change how we look at these, these subjects in a way that is helpful. Yeah. Because, because if hell is the basis for our relationship with Jesus, and, and a lot of my people had a stronger you know, relationship to hell than they ever did to Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's that was the basis for why they did everything, whether it was evangelism or anything else. And um, and it's like not helpful. Yeah, you know, not at all. And and I, you know, Brad Jerzak's book "Her Gates Will Never Be Shut" is a great book. If anybody wants to start reading about what's going on in this conversation, that's a good one to start with. Yeah, that's good. And yep. that's the thing about a punitive punishment. You know, as a motivating factor, I was in the pizza business for over 20 years, and I worked with a bunch of different franchise owners from Bellingham all the way to Tacoma. And over the years, 
it was funny how the people that survived tended to be franchise owners and bosses that that loved their people, that stuck by them. I know yeah. one guy who hired back a gambling addict after he had stole something like twenty five thousand dollars from him, and he was apologized, you know, in tears. He he served his time, went through a, a treatment program. And, and and yeah, this guy rehired this man, and he yeah. was, and he was fine after that. There was a situation where someone was stealing money, and they set up a bunch of cameras, and and he wasn't stealing the money, right? You know, just to catch whoever was doing it. Um, but my point is that, that one of the, another thing we saw was there's a lot of ex-military people that got into the pizza business. The sure. weird thing about the franchise I worked for is you had to have. You could have absolutely no training in order to buy a franchise. You just have $50,000 in a dream, and they would hand you a business, which wasn't yeah. always super healthy, and most of the franchises are gone now. Um, but the folks who are like military and could intimidate and, and yell at people and use that kind of fear-based tactic, it worked for a little while, you know? It, yeah, it yeah. worked for a while. Yeah, it was, it, it was sort of... You know, like uh, in Alaska, we had this term called peeing your pants to keep your backside warm, mm. right? It works yeah. pretty good for a little while. Right, right. <laughs> and, then, and then people would leave. As soon as the economy started doing better and there was more jobs out there, a lot of those folks would leave. And, and mo most of those people weren't in business anymore. You know, that's... Why would you stay somewhere where you're being abused? Exactly. And a lot of people feel about Christianity just like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, they go they go to hear somebody tell them what a piece of crap they are. Yeah. And it's just like, why would I do this if I have any sense of self-respect? Why would I do this? Yeah. And, um, you know, I was saying about businesses, some of the shift that's happening, um, they've started to create a new... Uh, position in a lot of companies called chief heart officer and that and that person's job description and they they are above the ceo oh wow and and their job description is to care and attend to the hearts of everyone who works in the company oh interesting for exactly what you're saying in yeah. terms of you know uh the ones who succeeded were those who cared for the people that were a part i mean they became family they became something that mattered and so all of a sudden there was like yeah um by caring for them it's costing us on the front side but we're we're saving a ton of money by having to do retraining rehiring on all all this other stuff yeah simply because we're caring for people and and they don't want to leave yeah yeah we had uh i yesterday just yesterday i had a conversation with uh a pastor friend of mine from Marysville, and I know these two guys, these guys are integral parts of my story. They were there with community for me when when I was borderline suicidal, you know. My mom was was encouraging me to see, you know, a, a counselor or a therapist, and, and I didn't have the money for that. And she was like, well, my pastor will meet with you, Pastor Dan. And I for you know, and, and at first I thought, I'm just going to rail this guy, Paul. <laughs> like, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to be raw and open and share with this guy where I'm at. Kind of. Not everything. But, you know, what I think about God, which was sort of like Mackenzie at breakfast there, right? Sure. And he was there, and he listened. And, and they were just full of grace. And so these guys are 
really close to my heart. And I was talking to, uh, I had lunch with Dan, and he was talking about this outfit similar to what you just said. They hired this company to come in, and they're called Vital Church, right? Again, <laughs> we have the heart metaphor. <laughs> and what they do is they step in and, and kind of evaluate what's going on in the church. And, and Dan called it like deinstitutionalizing. Yeah. Let's see where we're, you know, we could use some help in, in, in that word, like deinstitutionalizing. Yeah. Um, Rick had a, a different take on it, just kind of seeing where people's gifting were and, and people in leadership and, and helping them to see their blind spots. Right. Yeah. And there's. Uh, again, like Brene, Brene's book, you know, Dare to Lead. Yeah. Talking about authenticity and saying, look, if, if you are in leadership position in an organization or anywhere else and you're not willing to be authentic, you will you will not have a job in 10 years. Wow, yeah. You know, you need to do the work. Authenticity, clarity, uh-huh. empathy, and let's see, cave. C, clarity, authenticity. Uh, v is for what? And, so, and then empathy. Anyway, but it's these are all relational skills. Right, and um, and it's like no the 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 movement, whatever this thing the Holy Spirit's doing around the planet is raising the human conscience consciousness level, so that relationship becomes this, the central piece of what's going on, not the structure, not the system, not the outcomes, not the not the bottom line, right. not meeting you know not meeting all the the expectations of the board of directors and the shareholders and and they're recognizing it yeah. and meanwhile the church is just going on in its institutional system systemic sort of way uh, having bought into that blind to the rigidity right of what's yeah that's, what's going that's on. the rigidity yeah yeah there's a i think it was an old uh one of the desert fathers or, or heard somebody talking about how even the, the Gospels in the beginning were an oral tradition. And there was people that felt that if once they were written down, they would be... It would be Codified. Like, yeah, exactly. It would be like porn or something. Yeah. And yeah. people would, would lust after wanting to control the, the writings, which is kind of what, what we have now, right? Yeah. V, by the way, is vulnerability. So, vulnerability. But, there you go. Yeah. But... Thank, thankfully, we don't have the original manuscripts. Thankfully, yeah. the canon is different in the Protestant Church than the Catholic Church than the Orthodox Church. Uh-huh. You know, so it's it's like just at face value, we don't have something that you can codify in such a way that you can then worship it. Yeah. And, and but my people ended up worship worshiping it. You know, we in my particular denomination, we substituted the Bible for the Holy Spirit so that we still had a Trinity. But we just didn't need to deal with any of the Pentecostal charismatic stuff, you know. <laughs> right. And uh, so, but but we do. And then the the idea of the oral tradition is that it requires a face to face interaction. You have to tell me the story, or you have to tell me your story. Yeah. And and that's a very different thing to, than to say, okay, we can parse this and fix this, and then you need to think the way that I do. Yeah. And um, you know, people are beginning to understand and engage with the reality that they can hear the Holy Spirit for themselves. Yeah, yeah. And once you do that, institutional systems can no longer own you. And um, and then it's like, okay, so 
how do we be in all of this mess and not be of all of this mess? You what know? do you think uh, of, uh, of graduating from church, so to speak? Like, I think that there's people like uh, Donald Miller's a good example. A few years ago, he talked about publicly, he said, yeah, I just don't go to church anymore. And it was like a huge, right. you know, it was a huge deal. Well, let's, let's be very specific, though. And, and we have a problem with our language, and that is that we define church as the institutional yeah. system. That's a mistake right off the bat. Mm-hmm. And so when he says, I don't go to church anymore, he's talking about an institutional gathering, building, an institutional yeah, yeah. structure of some sort. But I know Donald, and I know he has layers of community and relationship yeah, exactly. around him that other people would die for. Uh-huh. Right? So he hasn't left the church at all. Yeah. The only true definition of church is the relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah. And so if, if you've got any systemic thing that is incongruent with the love and the mutuality and the kindness and the generosity that exists in the relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have something less than church. Yeah. And um, so um, I don't think... You know, God is has never been alone. This is, goes back to one of the very first things that you and I were talking about, and that is that this commitment to aloneness is so contrary to our ontology, the truth of our being. Yeah. You know, um, God's never been alone. God has always been in community. So we are made in the image and likeness of a God who's never been alone and always in community. Guess what? You don't graduate. Yeah. You move deeper into the reality of what it means to be church together. Right. It's just not the institutional structure and systems. Yeah. Now, we may organize in such a way that we gather together in a specific place, but you know what, what I heard growing up is that that institutional system was the church. And so now you either give your money, your time, your energy to that thing, or... You're an apostate of some sort, <laughs> yeah. you know? And uh, so the identification became, that's it, rather than the relationship. Right. And, um, and what's happening is that the brick-and-mortar systems are falling apart. Fascism doesn't work, as you know firsthand. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and it's like, no, there is an entirely different recognition. And along with it is coming a destruction of, of inadequate theology, if not flat-out wrong theology right. that a lot of us grew up with. So it's, it's all being reconfigured. And, and get this, and if it doesn't, if your theology doesn't lead you to a greater awareness of joy, a greater consciousness of your own brokenness and, and where you violate that, a greater capacity to love, then you're playing mind games. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that's Something's wrong with your theology if it's not leading you to the more that your heart always knew there had to be. The burning out, to use the hell term, right? Absolutely. It's like that, that song by by ACDC is is uh, Highway to Hell. You know, that's been a lot of my life. I think it's yeah. the, li- the life of a lot of addicts too. Is is we tend to run from hell, you know, um, instead of keep going through it or into it. Yeah. Well, you know, George McDonald says that that if you if you and this goes back to that scene with Papa on the breakfast at breakfast on the, with Mackenzie. George says, "If you trust the goodness of God, you will run to him with your arms wide open and you will say, "Please come." 
and judge me to the core and burn out of me everything that keeps me from being fully human and fully alive. Yeah. And, and that is the promise of judgment. And see, we've turned judgment into the doorway into punishment. Uh-huh. And, and McDonald has a great chapter on punishment in his uh, Unspoken Sermons, Creation and Christ. But it's, it's punishment in the sense that it's the punishment of the sin that keeps you from being free. And the, the more closely linked you have made your identity to that which is broken in you, the more painful it is to extricate it from you. Yeah, yeah. And yet the intention of love is to free you, as it would be for any parent or grandparent or someone who loves another human being. Yeah. You know, the intention of this affection is to free you to be fully yourself and yeah. thus fully of God. So true. Well said. And that's where... That's some of the work that that I've been going through, you know, healing that I've been going through recently. I think that starting the whole punk theology project, there was a bit of a fire burning advocacy going on in me a little bit, you know. Sure. And, and that led to some anger that was coming out. Hey, you're and you're still young. <laughs> well, I remember I'm 51, punk. I'm like, God, you, know, you look great for 51. <laughs> It's because I shave my head. That's what I do. That's that'll do it. All that gray you yeah. got going, I just shave it off. Nobody could see it. Yeah, well, I'm 64. <laughs> see on. that? There you go. Um, but I remember even you. I, I think you were you were doing a thing with Richard Rohr, right? Like you did a speaking deal with on the that. Trinity. Yeah, and and uh, and I even said that to you. I remember saying, uh, "Yeah, but but he's he's Catholic, Paul. Like he's not." <laughs> just having this oh the freaking Roman Catholic Church if there isn't a corrupter institution in the world I mean they're being investigated for for like by the FBI for or an Interpol for organized crime of of hiding pedophiles right and yep. uh, and yeah Richard's Franciscan I love Richard I listen to his podcast sermons and you know some of his books he's great but but I still had that thing like like here's my friend Paul running around with some Catholic. <laughs> oh, I run around with pretty much anybody. Yeah, I know. That's what's <laughs> that's what's interesting about you, and and I think it's because you and Baxter Kruger said that too. I can't remember the exact words. Looking at the person through the veil of all their shit and all the stuff that they put around, like you said with the analogy of the shack, right? It's like yep. dragging out this facade to put around the shack. Yep. And guys like yourself and 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 uh, it's kind of what I aspire to, to do that. And I do I do that with like people if you're addicted to heroin, Paul, like I I'm right there trying to move in behind, you know, the layers of chemical shit to to see your shack. So so you're but really good a... with pagans. You're just not so good with self righteous asses. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah, right? When... Those are the ones you want to have burn in hell. If your crack cocaine is yeah, some I don't know, protecting. Because at least I feel superior to you if you have a if you're a crack cocaine. Yes, yes. I'm at least I'm at least recovering. Right? Yeah. And I think that's a I big know. part of hell. And I think that some of your theology in the beginning when I first started flirting with, you know, orthodoxy and, and thinking about that theology and and understanding, you know, I, I kind of want, we all do, sort of, right? I want certain people to go to hell, you know, Paul? Yeah. Like I, want, I want them to burn, I want them to be punished. And some I, of that I do want them damage. to go to hell. I do. I, but I want them to go to hell so that they can be separated from their sin. Yeah. I want the rapist to go to hell. I want the murderer to go to hell. 
and I want them because the hell is the the river of fire that proceeds from the throne of God. That is, it is the very nature of love itself. Yeah. And the intention of that love is to free them. And it's not an easy process. No. You know, um, I, I don't want them to go there to be punished for what they've done. I want them to go there so that they can be freed from that which is not love's kind. Because yeah. that's not their ontology. Exactly. Their ontology is that they're beautiful and good and right. They're made in the image of God. Yeah. So, so love is their ontology. I was, I was listening. Baxter was talking um, through John as he does because he loves the Gospel of John, which I do too. And um, and he had this little phrase. He says um, he's reading and he says, "Men love the darkness rather than light." It's a verse that a lot of us know. Yeah. And I'm sitting there. This is just a couple weeks ago. And I'm sitting there and I go. I wonder what the Greek word for love is there, because men loved the darkness rather than light. And I look it up, and guess what it is? Huh. What, what would you think it's not? Agape. You think it's not agape? It's not it's a, agape. Is it? Wow. It is. Which is wow. which is the definition of God's kind of love: other-centered, self-giving, sacrificial love. Right. And I'm thinking, like, oh my goodness! Even in our commitment to darkness. We have to do it with agape because we're made in the image of God. Yeah, wow. And so we we give the darkness our it's we're other centered. We're centered on that darkness. We're um, self giving, yeah. and we're sacrificial. We will sacrifice to this darkness, but it's because we're made in the image of God and we're full of agape. We just push. We just put it in the wrong place completely. Right. That and, reminds uh, me of, the, of Tolkien with the, the my precious, right? Like that's that. Exactly. That's, that's exactly that. right. Yeah. Such a appropriate analogy, metaphor. Well, that, yeah. And I think that that's one of the biggest criticisms about The Shack, both the book and the film. I think more of the film because it, it, it there's a broader audience watching it, you know. Um, was the extraordinary response to to the understanding of forgiveness, and this is also something that's in the the national consciousness, the zeitgeist. There's this story yeah. of Brant Jean and this act of grace towards his brother's killer. Um, yeah, sparked, that was stunning. Yeah, and it sparked this whole debate on on forgiving. You know, uh, yeah. his for for listeners who haven't heard the story, his brother was. A black man was shot by this police officer, um, female police officer, and just like she deserves to go to prison. Like it was bad, you know. It, it was really, but his response in in forgiving her was uh, was really was interesting. Um, and at the same time, one of my friends, my friend Johnny, had a kind of a a reaction to it, to where in Christianity there's a lot of pressure sometimes to to forgive right away. Maybe before you've even done the work of understanding what that forgiveness means, and I know that the the shack goes deep dive into you know these layers of, I think it's the whole thing kind of culminates on him getting to that point. Like we don't know what happens afterwards, but he right. gets to that point. One of my favorite albums is Pink Floyd's "The Wall," right? It's that, amazing. It's that, an amazing album. Yeah, that same album, Roger Waters, you know, he ends... The whole thing culminates on, you know, the judge is standing there going, I sentence you to be exposed before your peers. Tear yeah. down the wall, you know? And it chants to this tear down the wall. And then it ends, like, okay, the wall's down, you know? 
um, um, Mackenzie's forgiven the the cat, you know, the perpetrator. Yeah, and then and then okay, fade fade to black and, and run credits, and maybe that's where where folks are are struggling with this debate over forgiveness, right? Yeah. Well, part of it is that we confuse forgiveness and reconciliation. Yeah. Part of it is that we don't understand that there's there still needs to purifying process. Right. You know, and and so the scene in the courtroom where he forgives her was profound. Um, let me read you something that now this I think captures it really well too. Um, same sort of thing, but it's. Um, uh, found on a wrapper in Ravensbruch, which was uh, one of the German concentration camps. And so handwritten, when they, when they opened up the camp, somebody found this note in Germany. Yep, it says, Lord, remember not only the men and women of goodwill, but also those of ill will. But do not remember all the suffering they have inflicted upon us. Remember rather the fruit that we bore thanks to the suffering our comradeship, our loyalty, our humility, the courage, the generosity, the greatness of heart that has grown out of this. And when they come to judgment, let all the fruits that we have borne be their forgiveness. Wow. Right? Yeah. So that's, that's profound. What I think some people are sensitive to is that, so it doesn't matter, you know? No, it matters. That's the point of the purifying, restorative love of God, this consuming fire, right. and so just uh, yeah. So there's process, and and in the to deal with forgiveness, that is for the sake of the victim. Forgiveness means that that I I I let go of how you are owning me because of what you did to me, right? Right. Because unforgiveness is like you carry the corpse of a memory about something somebody did. Who doesn't? Who may not even care about it, or might not even be alive? I would say, you know, forgiveness doesn't even require a face. You don't even have to see a face to forgive. If you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to the mountain of unforgiveness, "Be moved," and it'll be lifted up and cast into the sea. That's the passage context. Right. And um, so, forgiveness is to free the victim, and uh, much more than it is to do anything for the perpetrator. Right. Reconciliation is for the perpetrator. Yeah. But the process of reconciliation is ownership. You have to own what you've done. You have to confess it. You have to tell the truth about it specifically. You have to ask for forgiveness. And then you have to change over time because reconciliation is the rebuilding of trust. You know, and in, in human relationships, if you don't understand the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation, you think, well, forgiveness means that I have to be okay with them. You'll put, you'll put yourself right back into destructive cycles of relationship that that you were in to begin with exactly you open yourself up to abuse and exactly and so now no you can forgive someone and never trust them again yes but the, the work of the holy spirit in their life is to separate their identity from their behavior in such a way that trust is then reborn as a possibility right and uh and i and i love that so yeah, that's beautiful, and yeah. it's also having the uh, the grace, of, if that's the right word, to have to be also open to this person changing. 
because to yeah, say, yeah, you know, to that, say, hey, I'm I'm done with you, and I'm going to walk away, and and you know, I forgive you because that's good for me. But there's also the the, the kind of open-handed, uh, you know, I yes, I could be um, open to a relationship with you in the future. Possibly, yeah. that's a miracle when it happens. It is a miracle because it, it doesn't usually doesn't happen. Yeah. It's like winning yeah. the lottery or something. Reconciliation is for the sake of the perpetrator, and it does require a face. Yeah. And um, and so it, when reconciliation happens, it happens over time if it's real. Yeah. And um, and you know, it's miraculous. It's just absolutely miraculous. Yeah. So. Matthew West had a song about that he wrote about a a, a woman whose whose son was killed by a drunk driver, and he went to prison, got out of prison, and asked for forgiveness. And she had to do the work of of forgiveness through with him. And then they became friends. And then this young man became sort of like a a, a son to her, which I thought yep. was was pretty beautiful and interesting and how do you do that yep without... that's that's miraculous and <laughs> i i know situations exactly like that wow. you know i've got friends on death row in tennessee and unit two yeah and um and so i i know what's happened in their world and their situations exactly like that song yeah and um i was going to ask you about that with the shack being as popular as it has been, you know, you've had to have correspondence with not just folks who have suffered horrific loss, but the perpetrators of some of that horrific loss. Yeah, uh, I have a P.O. box, and I only get letters from two sorts of folks. People in prison and old people. <laughs> right. the, the, the older folks are the only ones who still know how to write a letter. Uh and the people in prison don't have a choice but to write a letter. Yes. And uh, so my my, I've got hundreds of letters from prisoners all across the country, and um, but I've become friends with the guys on death row. I mean, I they're my friends. Some of the freest people I've ever met, and uh, and you know, but they're inside of a a Western religious punitive system. Yeah. You know, where. No, it's the punishment that yeah. matters. It's not reconciliation. It's not redemption. It's not restoration. It's not transformation. It's punishment. Yeah. And um, and in fact, you know, it's one form of aloneness or another. You know, mm -hmm. so isolation becomes the big, the big weapon, and then after that, it will kill you. Yeah. yeah. And uh, which is death is a form of aloneness. That's you know, yeah. that's how it's understood, even though it doesn't have the power. To actually, and in fact, in the name of aloneness, it opens up the veil for absolute centrality of relationship. Yeah, and that's, that's where I think I go. Irony with of it, death. That speaking of agape and, and agapeing our darkness, I think that's where I, I go philosophically with it. You know, is like that backing up into the shadow. Yeah, know? not just alonement, but the just taking on the attitude of abandonment. Right, being the sinful. which is a lie. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah. You've never been alone. You'll never be alone. God's never been alone. You were created in Christ. You can't get alone. Nothing can separate you from God's love. Yeah. Sorry. 
Yeah. Aloneness is a myth that doesn't exist. It's not true, but it feels true. So yeah. Jesus had to go into that mythology of aloneness to destroy it, which he did. Yeah. Not, ju- not just did he destroy the power of death, but the fear of it. How about um, letters from... Because I know that Missy in the shack is a metaphor. And Missy sure. being murdered was, was, was Paul. That was you. That was your childhood, right? Yeah. Yep. And you and I share that. And uh, it's funny, that's kind of where we hit it off, is we were both 38 before we told another human being that something like that happened. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Uh, you know, I was with Terry King, who's on death row in Tennessee, and and uh, I met him because of the shack, and we're sitting there and we're talking. He says, you know what changed for me? He says, it was the cave scene with Sophia. Uh he said, you know, all these years, he's been on death row for 35 years now, waiting for his execution. He says, uh, all those years, I acknowledged what I did, you know. and um, But it wasn't until I read The Shack and that scene with Sophia in the cave, chapter 11, and he said... Um, okay, so going to play a clip from the film to maybe amplify or set the scene for what Paul is about to unpack here. Uh, courtesy of Lionsgate Summit Entertainment. This is the cave scene from the shack. You don't believe that God is good? Is Missy his child? Of course. Then no. I don't think God loves his children very well. If that's what you believe... Come, sit. Okay, pause. Being that this is audio, let me explain. Mac is in a cave, and it's dark, cold. There's this um, bench, right? Like a judge's bench or throne kind of a thing. And Sophia is sitting in the judgment seat, and she waves here for him to approach, right? Like approach the bench or step up. You can judge me fine from there. Judge you? Mm Mm-hmm. Do you have something to confess? Uh, You know what I did. Yes, but you're not the one on trial. Today, you are the judge. What? Why are you surprised? You spent your whole life judging nearly everyone and everything, their actions and motivations, as if you could even know them. You make snap judgments just by the color of someone's skin, their clothes, their body language. By all accounts, you're a well-practiced expert, Mackenzie. Sit. Here, Mac gets up and sits in the judgment seat. Who am I supposed to judge? There must be at least a few who are to blame for all the pain and suffering in the world, right? (sighs) What about the selfish? The greedy? Those who harm others? Murderers? Drug dealers? 
terrorists guilty? Yeah. What about men who beat their wives? Here, what did you say? Or fathers who beat their sons to alleviate their own suffering? Let's not do this. Should that man be judged? Yeah. I know you and you're gonna keep your mouth shut. What about this boy? What about him? Would you judge him? He's a kid. But you already have. The boy's your father. Now, what about the man who preys on innocent little girls? Daddy! Daddy! Okay, that's Is that man guilty? I would damn him now. And what of his father? The man who twisted him into this deviant monster? I would damn him too. How can you stop there? Doesn't the legacy of brokenness go all the way back to Adam? And what about God? Isn't he at fault? He set all this in motion. Especially if he knew the outcome. Do you want me to say it? Absolutely. God is to blame. Well, if it's so easy for you to judge God, you must choose one of your children to spend eternity in heaven. The other will go to hell. I can't. Can't do what? I'm only asking you to do something you believe God does. At this point, both of Mac's kids appear at Sophia's side. So? Who will go to hell? You could choose Kate. She said some pretty hurtful things. She shuts you out. You're not even sure if she loves you anymore. Or... You could choose Josh. He's being disobedient, sneaking out, lying to you. You didn't know that. Mackenzie, make your choice. I won't do this anymore. I can't do this. Can't do what? I can't. I won't. You must. This isn't a game. You have to. You know what? This isn't fair. You must. It isn't fair.
I'll go instead of them. I'll take their place. You take me. I'll go in their place. You, you, you leave my kids alone and you take me. Mackenzie, you've judged your children worthy of love. Even if it costs you everything. Now you know Papa's heart. You know, I don't understand. Is how God can love Missy and put her through so much horror. She was innocent. I know. Did he use her to punish me? Because that's not fair. And she didn't deserve it. And my wife and my children didn't deserve it. Now I might. Because I'm... Is that who your God is, Mackenzie? No wonder you're drowning in great sorrow. God isn't like that. This was not God's doing. Yeah, stop it. He doesn't stop a lot of things that cause him pain. What happened to Missy was the work of evil. And no one in your world is immune from it. You want the promise of a pain-free life. <laughs> there isn't one. As long as there is another way in this universe, free not to follow God. Evil can find a way in. There's got to be a better way. There is. And that scene with Sophia in the cave, chapter 11. And suddenly he said, I, I felt so overwhelmingly convicted that I thought my skin was on fire. Wow. And I was literally crawling on the floor of my cell trying to get out of my own skin because I realized that the reason I had never owned what I actually did in killing one of God's precious children is because I still sat in the seat of judgment. I still thought, well, at least I'm better than the pedophiles on death row. Wow. And because I sat in the seat of judgment, it gave me permission to not have to deal with what I had done. Right. And, I, and when he tells me that, it's just like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. How true is that? And, um, and so you hear in the background, you hear Paul say something, Paul the Apostle say something like, you know, I, I judge no one according to the flesh. Right, right. Um, you begin to see people according to the truth of their being. You don't deny their behavior. That's you got to deal with that. Yeah, they got to deal with that. That's right. You know, but that's not the truth of who they are. Yeah. And so we don't sit in a position of judgment, thinking like, "Oh yeah, no," because we recognize the grandeur and the magnificence of that person, no matter how locked they are into their crap yeah. and how how buried they are. There is a diamond underneath all that stuff. And um, 
and we can call it out. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, Jay Baker was uh, my last guest on the show, and he he had a great quote. Actually, he tweeted. I thought it was great. I saved it. And he said, he said, I'm starting to think that grace may be a form of anarchy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is, because it's disruptive to everything that, you know, in this world system, religious system, political system, we hold dear. Yeah. You know, and grace is just another name for the Holy Spirit. So, yeah, she's a redeeming genius. And, uh, yeah, she's an anarchist in the sense that, but she she's an anarchist of love. Yes. Right? Yeah. And so Healthy this is anarchy. A grace are to destroy that which keeps us from being fully human and fully alive. There's nothing more anarchistic than love itself. Yeah. It, it destroys systemic evil. So incredibly true. Paul, thanks yeah. again for being on the show and uh, honored to be and, good to talk to you again. Yeah, man. It's uh good to have you and uh Thank God for all the work you do and still out there and, and uh, changing hearts and minds and creating a conversation. Honored to be a part of that. Don't I don't I never try to do that. It just is what's happening and I'm like, wow, that's yeah. so cool. And I hear the Holy Spirit go, Whatever. <laughs> <You're right>. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what but it is, it's a beautiful thing. You brought this story out into the world. And people are are all encountering it on their own their own level, and and that's yeah. what's what's really beautiful. That's a Holy Spirit thing. I'm so grateful. Thank you, Holy Spirit. We will have more, please. Yeah, that's right. Paul, thanks again. Thank you, Russ. Bless you. All right, we got some bonus material for you uh, for the theologians out there. All right. Paul Young gets a more than his fair share of people jumping to conclusions about his theology, about the way he thinks and what he believes. Um, this is my friend Jim Henderson and, and Paul, and this is from the YouTube channel Jim Henderson Productions. Jim Henderson is a pastor. Jim kind of grills Paul on what he believes about the cross um, about heaven and hell and it's it's about eight minutes long it's really good but I'd throw this in for the theologians out there things that people uh, have come to associate with you with in churches is the term universalist. Uh, this, this comes um, uh, as a result of them reading The Shack, I suppose. Uh, or hearing about it. Hearing about it. Mm-hmm. And what does that term mean and why are they afraid of it? Well, partly because it has a whole bunch of meanings. And, and the thing with terms is that it, you have to define it. So when anybody asks me, are you a universalist? My first question is, 
what do you think one is? Because I might be. <laughs> because, you know, uh, by universalist, do you mean that God loves the entire cosmos? Is that universalism? Yeah, then I would be one. Mm-hmm. Uh, did, uh, did Jesus' atonement embrace the entire cosmos? Or just a small sector of it? Well, if universalism means that he embraced the entire cosmos, that would be me. If universalism is, hey, you know what? There's no such thing as absolute truth, but you know, you can, there's just universal truth, and so you can go down any path you want, and you're going to end up. No, I'm not a universalist. Um, do I believe that ultimately every human being will be fully and completely reconciled back to God? There's a definition of universalism. Mm-hmm. And I would say no. I would say I don't know. And I would say I hope so. I think Colossians says pray that this is true. And I, you know what? I wouldn't put it past God to have in the wisdom of God's um, plan and purpose that he figured out how to create, have beings that have the right to say no mm-hmm. and how to win without any coercion. Mm-hmm. And, and am I opposed to that? And would I be opposed to every single part of this cosmos being fully reconciled in love back to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? I used to be. Because I used to think I was better than somebody. And I used to think I knew people that I didn't want to make it. What makes Jesus unique? Because when Jesus it, yeah. said, "You cannot come to the Father except through me," John fourteen six. Yeah. See, and what I he, think what in is the he West, talking about? Yeah, I think in the West we've made Jesus very small. He's a very itty bitty Jesus, and so he. Our our paradigm is that God has created creation, spun it out there somewhere, right, and then it messes itself up. So he sends Jesus over there to build a bridge back. Mm-hmm. That's our mentality, and I'm going. Wait a second. Where do you think creation is created? Because all there was before time, space, and matter was there was a relationship of three persons who had such an incredible integration with one another that it's called oneness. There's one you, God. You talk about the three persons pre-existing, the social community, whatever, yeah. uh, a lot, and it's not talked about that frequently in church we talk about modern jesus modern church it's not it was talked a lot about in but you place yeah. jesus clearly in that threesome absolutely and so prior to the incarnation when jesus becomes fully human right. he is referred to as the word right. you know the word who was with god and turned toward god and was god right. and um, and even in the hebrew paradigm of genesis you have elohim which is a plural word with singular verbs. And so you've got this multiplicity of person. That's absolutely vital to me. So not only do I think that creation is created inside this relationship, I think it's created in specifically the person who is the Word who then becomes Jesus. So there's no other God or personage in history that could replace Jesus. None of no gods exist. Exactly. Right? right. So we're talking about a very big Jesus, not a little itty bitty right. Jesus. Everything moves, has its being. Everything is by, forth, through, and in Him. John says, "Not anything that has come into being has come into being apart from Him." So any theology of separation is false. Why do you love the Bible? Oh, I think it's the Bible is this incredible compilation of poetry and stories and songs. 
in which human beings participated with the Holy Spirit to put together all these perspectives on the character and nature of God. I think it's an unfolding illumination of the character and nature of God. I don't think the verse is... Unfolding in, from when to when. Right, from Genesis okay, in that onward, okay, right? Yeah. And I don't, think, um, I don't think it's in the beginning was the Bible, and the Bible was with God, and the Bible was God. I, you know, the word to me is Jesus. It's that has become interpreted. It has. Yeah. And a lot of, in my family tradition, sure. you know, Christian fundamentalist tradition, um, but I, I, I don't uh, think the Holy Spirit is restricted to words on a page anyway. But if you're going to find a compilation of this unfolding illumination of the character of God, Scriptures are beautiful. And that's why you think of it as a narrative, or I would, I would sometimes call it a movie in some ways. And but I we tend to think both. of it as a dictionary. Well, and we tend to think of it as systematic theology, you know, and so we lose the story. So we'll run into a simple verse and we'll create a whole mythology out of it because we've lost the story in here. God's always been a storyteller. And, uh, and you know, it's because every human being is a story. Mm-hmm. Are you a Christian? Tell me what one is. I'll tell you if I'm one of those. Tell me if you want to be one. I don't, I don't mind being one. And my whole tradition is labeled that way. Yeah. But if a Christian is someone who believes in a God who requires child sacrifice, I'm not one of those. If a Christian is someone who believes that, you know, uh, there are certain kinds of people or in certain uh, categories that um, uh, are not worthy of the affection of God, I'm sorry, I'm not one of those. Um, to me, everything, you know, Christian wasn't a term that Jesus ever used, and it didn't exist while he was on the planet. When it says the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all, on all flesh, there were no Christians in that audience, right? So Christian was a term that actually was a derogatory term that was embraced by the early community. They were a sect, a religious sect in the viewpoint of the world, but they embraced it because of the identify, uh, identification with Jesus, right? And I'm all for that. So, yeah, I'm a Christian, absolutely. But let's talk about what we think one is. And for me, it centers on, okay, so let's talk about Jesus. And then behind Jesus, let's talk about who did Jesus come to reveal. So as much as Scripture reveals the character and nature of God, the clearest revelation we have is the person of Jesus. Why does the church exist? The church, the word in the Greek is um, ekklesia, ekklesia, right? And ek is... Uh, uh, a part, or and and the kalos or the kalosia part is means form. It comes from a word that means form. Here you've got within the subset of humanity an exposition or an unveiling of God's intention. It's supposed to be a community of people who actually love one another, mm-hmm. who actually have learned how to walk through the damage of this world and find a way to have a conversation in which there is grace and kindness and goodness. And, uh, but it's a subset of all of humanity. And I, I would refer to the verse that says, so uh, this is Paul in Timothy. He says, here is a statement that is true and worthy of full acceptance, that Jesus Christ is the Savior of all mankind, especially of believers. And I think it's, he's got his tongue firmly in his cheek on that point. You know, and he's and it's a subset, right? So here you've got a community of people who've been desperate enough that they've gone to the wedding day, and when they heard Jesus say "I do," they said, 
I do. And it doesn't mean that he hasn't said I do to every single person. We have the right, potentially forever, to resist this relentless affection of God. ASI, or Attitudes of Sexual Integrity, is a listener-supported podcast. Do you like what you hear, here? Please leave a review on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher or wherever you may be hearing this podcast. The podcast, Attitudes of Sexual Integrity, is owned by Digital Audio Project LLC who is responsible for its contents. ASI, the podcast and its content is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to replace or substitute for any professional physiological, medical, legal, or other advice. In addition Russ makes no representations or warranties within or through the podcast or website. If you have specific concerns or a situation in which you require professional physiological or medical advice, you should consult with an appropriately trained and qualified specialist. The ASI Podcast is a listener-supported production. Your greatly appreciated financial assistance in keeping the ASI Podcast up and running is the reason it has been in existence this long. But Russ needs more accomplices in delivering this underground message to the masses. You can give one time or be a monthly accomplice to this here pirate radio program. You can do that as a co-producer. Go to asi 24 ORG to learn more. Thanks for listening and don't forget to subscribe.